This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. On this episode, Peter Orner and I discuss Dancing After Hours by Andre Debuse. A few things to know about this story before we dig in. Peter Orner and Andre Debuse were close friends. Peter will share a little bit about that. Andre Debuse, like Drew, one of the characters in the story, was confined to a wheelchair. Andre Debuse loved bars, and this story is set in a bar. Andre Debuse is someone who could really write stories about women. In many of his stories, relationships between men and women are troubled, but women are most times complex, sensitive, full of a kind of hope in the face of loss. Emily, in the story Dancing After Hours, is 40 years old. She's never been married or been in a serious relationship. She's pretty certain she'll never have children. She loves to read and takes good care of herself. She describes herself as homely and blames some of her loneliness on her looks. She used to be a teacher but fell out of love with that vocation because her students failed to appreciate literature the way she did, so she became a bartender. One night, Drew arrives at the bar with his aide Alvin. Nothing happens right away. It takes a while. But something most definitely happens to Emily and the others who stay at the bar to drink, eat, talk, share, and dance. Drew cannot change the facts of his life. In accepting herself as she is, Emily cannot change hers either. But what happens after hours at the bar could well have made a difference to her. Here now, Peter Orner and I discuss Dancing After Hours by Andre Debuse. I'm at a loss, really, how to talk about this one. Let's do some warm-up, I guess. I just read it again for the third time in the last couple of days, and it's still... Wow. And you know what? When I read it again, the first time recently, I had the same weird feeling I had the first time I read it of, I don't know. I just had the same feeling of, like, wow, like, (laughs) how does he know? Yeah, what a genius this is. How does he know? How does he know what? How does he know everything, honest to God? How does he know women? And how does he know? I'd love to hear more about that because I love the story dearly. I mean, I love it more than almost any other of his, but it's not his best. You know what I mean? And that's what I love about it, actually. It is something so, again, I knew we'd fall into this and I knew I wouldn't know what to say, but I'm just curious what you think he, uh, what you think he gets right that maybe other writers fall short at. I agree with you. This is a story I love, and I agree with you that it is not his best story. But that's kind of why I love it the best, actually. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I love do. it because it's so incredibly human. It's like not even a story. It's we all spent last night in the bar, and I'm hungover and tired from that experience because I was there. You know what I think I love about this story, and it just occurs to me just now, is that it's so uh, romantic. But that part of it is so tempered by such realistic details. So part of it for me is like, oh, I don't like that it's romantic. And then the other part of it for me is that tempered with everything else, it's it's so gorgeous. Tempered with the with the raw stuff and the and the real stuff and the terrible, even the terrible, terribly sad stuff. I think that's what a short story is supposed to do. Even though it's romantic and it ends in this kind of positive way, and I'm jumping way ahead, way too fast. 
I like that idea of, you know, it's just like what a short story is supposed to do. Not a tidy ending. It's open-ended. Who knows what will happen tomorrow? That doesn't matter to us. And yet it's the same people that were in this bar doing these things, talking about these things, so realistically drawn that I can handle the romance of it. There's still very obviously a measure of yearning that everybody is always going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. That part is never going to go away. Well, that's, I think there it is, you know, like, yes, it's romantic, but it's romantic in the way that everybody experiences this, which is the thudding reality of the reality of, you know, of what all of us experience, which is, you know, these, these highs and these lows and, you know, moments of sort of connection that, I mean, for me, the stories are really all about strangers connecting in a way that, you know, is so rare, but happens. And I think this story tracks one of those incredibly rare times in our lives when when some strangers collide and 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 everything sort of drops and you're able to to be yourself for a little while not with people you know but with people you don't know and that you know call it romantic and etc and and there there is a great deal of that in the story but there's also the Debussyan practicalities he's got his eye on every physical thing that is going on in the bar he knows that the you know the clock is 20 minutes slow. He knows how, how the drinks are made. He knows what's in the drinks. He knows how um, a bartender has to be simultaneously aware of multiple things going on and have that be sort of seamless and not even having people necessarily notice it. It strikes me as this story is about a rare night and we all have them sometimes. I think you're right. I do think we all, I hope everybody does have those moments, those experiences because they are important. And I I agree with you. They're, they are those moments where you are purely yourself. You have zero self-consciousness. You have zero sense of guile. You're just who you are. It's a very strange feeling. And I think Debuse captures it particularly, obviously, with the character of Emily. But I do want to go back and say one more thing that I hope people listening, if they've not read this story, will read the story just for those details that you just mentioned and the things that Debuse is able to do sort of in the background and bring it to the foreground for the rest of, for the rest of us to see the clock that's 20 minutes slow and, and all of these things. The smells, the way things look, all of that, you know, that, that alone is just fantastic in the story but like you say that i think that the the things that are harder to talk about in this story the things that are uncomfortable in the story you know debuse is not afraid to go anywhere here things that in isolation would sound wrong and yet we know that people think them you know mm-hmm. I, I feel like you know the, the way the story starts where it sort of focuses on emily and her looks and how she feels about her looks and her identity as a person who's not beautiful in her own mind. You know, it's uncomfortable, but it it's what she thinks. I mean, I just wonder what you think about, what you thought about how it opened, uh, cueing on her and her thinking about herself. Okay. I just think, I mean, I think that's kind of what you were getting at and yeah. said initially. And I thought like, all right, well, I mean, because, you know, there's other debut stories where he goes here, right? But there's something about this one. And, and I'll just say, before you speak on this, 
which I can't wait, is that, you know, this is one of his very, very last stories. And there's something about it that's always felt different to me. And it has to do with, with Emily. Because Emily is so, we're in the mind of Emily and... And, and we're in a bar in Hardscrabble, Massachusetts. It's a kind of a roadhouse kind of thing. It's a big place and a lot going on. One of the things about that, let's see. Emily had worked here for over seven years, had never had a customer in a wheelchair, and had never wondered why the front entrance had a ramp instead of steps. Those kinds of Emily details are, I think these sorts of things occur to people like, oh yeah, I never, yeah, there is a ramp there. And I, I use the ramp. <laughs> I walk on the ramp and I never think about the ramp in any other way, except as an access point for people who are walking across it. You know, those are these kinds of small details Emily details are very important in the story. But beyond that, the Emily details that are about Emily, you know, right off the bat, we know what she's wearing. And it, I love I love immersing myself in that section for good or ill. That's just Emily, what she's wearing, what she looks like, what she feels about her looks, what she feels about other people's looks. It's parts where her eyes, her nose, her mouth, her cheeks and jaw and chin and brow, but combined, they lack the mysterious proportion of a pretty face during Emily's womanhood in America. Often looking at photographs of models and actresses, she thought how disfiguring an eighth of an inch could be if a beautiful woman's nose were moved laterally that distance or an eye moved vertically. And then her body had vigor and beneath its skin were firm muscles. And for decades, her female friends had told Emily they envied it. They admired her hair too, it was thick and soft and fell in waves to her shoulders. And she has a great personality right? I mean, it was sort of like how she's managing these low feelings about her appearance and then sort of trying to think about the positive things about herself. But she believes she's homely. It says, believing she was homely as a girl and a young woman had deeply wounded her. She knew this affected her when she was with people and she knew she could do nothing but feel it. She could not change. And on it goes from there. But yes, all the things you cannot change. All the things you cannot change about yourself. I, I pick that line up and I carry it with me into the rest of the story. All the things these other characters cannot change about themselves. Right. And then, and there, but there's something, and this is a, a character who she's 40. She used to be a teacher. One of the beautiful things that actually connects to some of our other shows is that she, when she goes to the beach, she reads Edna O'Brien. And uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen a character in any fiction. <laughs> they should be reading. Fictional characters should be reading Edna O'Brien. Why aren't they? And I, I remember um, reading that for the first time and, and just cheering. She quit the job teaching because it, it got to be too much. There was only a few kids that connected with her love of literature. And so she's she becomes a full-time bartender. And like a lot of people, she's not all one thing. And so, you know, Andre DeBuse knew that bartenders were also experts on T.S. Eliot. And she is, you know, and, and, she's, and she's a jazz aficionado too. All these things that were Andre wasn't real life himself also. There's something just about her character and the way that it just the story opens with the bartender and how she feels about herself. And then, you know, what ends up happening very early on in the story is two characters enter, two strangers, uh, one guy in a wheelchair and his caretaker. And as you say, the, she starts to think about the ramp that hasn't been used. And I hate to be, I'm not going to be too personal here, even though I should just say that Andre was a close friend and a mentor and a dear, dear person in my life. And I would go to his house every Thursday night for 
three and a half years to read my stories with other a group of other other writers and with Andre and Andre would share his stories with us and one of the stories he read one night was this one was this story and I heard it for the first time while he read it from a typewritten manuscript but the reason I'm saying this is because on the way to his house I went by this bar that he that I he never told me it was a bar that had one of those old rickety ramps it wasn't like a modern American with Disabilities Act ramp it was one of these old ones that sort of like you can't you so it's a sort of I forgive Emily for not realizing that that was like oh wait that's a ramp for people somebody in a wheelchair but it turns out it was built for somebody in a wheelchair somebody who never had a chance to use it because he died before it was built any case I'm I'm digressing no 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 and I love this idea that you were able to hear the story from from your friend yeah he um you know he would like the rest of us uh we went wrote on rotating basis and when it was andre's turn he would read himself just as if he was one of us and uh, <laughs> he was more nervous he would sit back in his chair my recollection is he read fairly quickly but really succinctly at the same time so he didn't miss anything but it was he was motoring right um, I think partly out of nerves. You know, this is not a, this is not a short story, right? This took a while <laughs> that night. Um, and you know, sometimes you don't know what you remember and what you make up. But um, <laughs> but he read a bunch of stories from Dancing After Hours. And my recollection is that he read this one, but um, it may be a, apocryphal in my own mind. <laughs> well, let it be. So Emily's Emily has this ability to imagine the the lives of the other characters and so that's like that's debuse right debuse and this you know I have read a lot over the years about this empathy the idea of empathy in his stories after his accident but I see that Emily has this ability to just imagine what the other characters are going through when they go home like Rita doesn't like being home alone right. and Kay's falling in love with her with Rita and she just has like she's someone who feels things very, very deeply. I mean, up to a point, like she makes these observations and it doesn't cause her to go do anything or, or be in tears like 24 seven, although she could be. She makes these observations and she knows these things. And then when she's not at the bar observing people and thinking about these things, she's in her own home alone and reading and doing, I think, some pretty, I think she's a very self-disciplined person and has these routines that she does. That's also very interesting how how at the end she will sort of allow a disruption in her routine. Again, moving too, too fast to the end of the story, but she is just this creature of routine, it seems. And but maybe because she has to be there there are things that yeah, she, yeah. That she i think it's, it's like self-protective right I mean, exactly yeah and we all all of us do this you know yeah. we, there are things we do to protect ourselves and it seems that emily is you know and and like other characters in the story too rita especially are protecting themselves from love i mean this is where the romantic part of the story comes in right it's like and again this is stuff we don't talk about and you know, a lot of writers flub it, you know, and so, but Andre, Andre Buse goes right in there. You know, she's, she doesn't want to fall in love because that's, that, that could cause too much pain. I mean, he, he, she comes out and thinks it, right? She is alone. She would like to be not alone. She would like for a man to think that she's beautiful and that she's lovable and all of this. And then it goes terribly wrong for her and she's alone again. And she doesn't, you know, she's 40 years old and she realizes at a certain point she's probably never going to have any children. There are these moments in the story that, again, because it's debuts, I feel like this is what it is for me about the short story sometimes, depending on the day, <laughs> is that... <laughs> 
he can take a character who is a who, you know as we see in all in short stories who's about to reach this moment of i won't say epiphany but this moment of of a sense of identity or a sense of i'll just say reaching something reaching something that you know this yearning and this loss and this sort of filling of the void that's momentary in that story there's a moment where that emily or that character has to be confronted with that yearning or with the tension of the yearning full on and then what are you going to do because the rest of us are watching or the rest of us are reading the story so we know that this is something that she goes through all the time and then in the story this is a moment that's created that's what makes makes it such a powerful story and, and, and yes this is what short story writers do but it's the way debuse did it in this one yeah i mean that's the thing you know he, he, we're, we're dealing at a, at a at a tightrope walk level like like the guy <laughs> who you know does the between the twin towers that's what, yeah. that's that's where we're at here with, yeah. with the story and you know, what happens is, is that it's a quadriplegic that this man drew as a quadriplegic kind of, it pushes a bit of a reckoning for Emily, not an obvious one. And it takes, a. I read this story as taking place over the course of about six hours in a bar from about nine, I, I think Drew and his uh, caretaker, Alvin, enter the bar after nine. And I don't think anyone goes home until fourth. So that's that's a long way. So it takes a while, right, for this to yeah. for this to reckon. But um, but just to go back a little bit to what you were saying, to put it in uh, Debus's words, he he puts it like this: Emily wished she were not so cautious or disillusioned. She longed for love, but was able to keep her longing muted till late at night when she lay reading in bed. It was trumpets, drums, French horns. That's a risky. That's risky, Andrew. And when and then. It, semicolon of which he was famous for and loved in spite of his friend Kurt Vonnegut hating them <laughs> semicolon and when she woke at noon its sound in her soul was a distant fast train love did not bring happiness it did not last and it ended in pain she did not want to believe this and she was not certain that she did perhaps she feared it was true in her own life and her fear had become a feeling that tasted like disbelief. So many tracking, like we have these deeply held beliefs, and then they can be punctured in a in in the next sentence, and not even in his case, not the next sentence after a semicolon, you know, because we are constantly wavering, even in our most deeply held beliefs. And that is why Emily's open, because a lot of us are. Emily's not rigid in her self-protectiveness, you know, she's she's willing, but it's gonna take a while. And it's going to take it's going to take six hours of, of spending time with two strangers, not just Drew, but also Alvin. The caretaker is a key, key character here because he's the one who's actually been willing to take certain chances to connect with another human being. Chances that are not pleasant, like taking care of uh, Drew's shit. Right. And that's yeah. why Emily emphasizes. I mean, she almost kind of fantasizes about what. Alvin has to do to take care of Drew. I think that's what opens, it provides an opening, not just for Emily, but for the other characters in the story. It's a crowded story. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of people being opened up by Drew's appearance in their lives tonight, that night. Jeff, Kay, Rita, um, all of them, to a certain extent, there's an opening out. Again, it, it would seem t totally cheesy. Two strangers walk into a bar and everybody's changed. 
right? <laughs> Write that story. If you go down that page a little bit, love also pulled you downhill. Then you had to climb again to the top where you felt solidly alone with your integrity and were able to enjoy work again and food and exercise and friends. There's a lot of that in here. A couple pages from there, Emily had discipline. Every night she read two or three poems and talks about everything she eats and it's always the same thing and da 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 and you know, the rest. I think this idea about Emily and the rest of them who have like these, you know, their hidden lives at home. And when they come into the bar, they're who they who they have to be in the bar. And this is all the other person knows about the other, right, is who they are at the bar. Although Emily imagines so much more about everybody else. In Walk, Drew and Alvin, you know, and I always want to think a little bit about that. Like, I really want to know what it what it was. It, it starts as a kind of empathy or it starts as a kind of feeling of the types of things that Alvin has to do for Drew so that they can eat their meal or so that they can drink out of certain kinds of glasses that Drew can manage. And this is all sort of Emily thinking. And then, of course, later we see that Jeff has some insight. Jeff, the manager of the bar, has some insight, too, about what's happening with, with Drew. There's this variation with Jeff, whose wife has left him, and you know he's got his own story, too. But he tells Emily about his friend who was a quadriplegic after Vietnam. And he says pretty profound things about this man that knew that something like his body was his enemy and he was tired all the time. And there's that moment also where where Emily has done something very thoughtful for Drew and Alvin and Jeff says something like nice and she's moved to tears by his acknowledgement right. of that. So there are, the, there are those moments too where it feels like part of the time Emily's sort of so in control in the story that this sort of self-protection and in that moment, she can't be, she doesn't manage it. Yeah. It breaks down. And that, that, you know, I think that's what's a, what very rarely do you see this happening in real time and there, you know, where you actually watch this sort of somebody dropping their guard in real time. And the story that it has this incredible feel of just having lived through that night. When you said you read the story three times in the last few days, I'm like, really? Because <laughs> I don't think I could handle it. Like I literally, I, I'm, I'm exhausted. It's good exhausting. Way. Exhausted and exalted. But you do feel like you you're there with them. I mean, when they're making the cheese sandwiches, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're eating again. You right, know, right. It's a and very long night. Telling us they're making the cheese sandwiches at one point, Alvin. The caretaker goes in with Jeff and makes sandwiches with him. I'm like, why? Why did you tell us that? But, but because, you know, because he's they're drinking. literally grounded <laughs> in the story in a way that just, you know, you're, you're sort of, we're kind of trained in a way to sort of get to the heart of things. And Andre certainly knew that. But he also knew that to have those guys in the kitchen making sandwiches together is a key part of the development of these yeah. guys starting to become friends because they're going to, I think they're going to be lifelong friends, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't know if it's going to work out with Jeff and Emily, which is the kind of budding romance that's a possibility in this story. But Jeff, certainly Jeff, like you said, everyone's got their story, including Jeff. We think we know Jeff. We think we know him. He's got no hair left. His wife left him. He just wants a boat. He can't afford it. Like, we think we know a guy like Jeff and Andre's Andre's take on it is like, you don't. You don't know anybody until you that's start right. listening to their stories. That's right. That's what the story, that's why it's, yes, you read it three times, three times over two days. You're, it is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Reading that one time is exhausting. <laughs> and, and it's only because you're never bored about it. You're never tired of it. 
but you feel like like you've got to keep your strength up to keep up with these people because they're going to be there for hours. This isn't like a couple of hours at the bar at the end of the day. This is hours. And then they're going to top it off with dancing, right? right. <laughs> this very physical kind of thing that, they, that they're going to do uh, near the end of the story. And we haven't said nearly enough about music, I suppose, or about the character who's based on a real person, right, of Kirk and this experience that Emily had years back and how she, how that's woven into the story. Gorgeous, gorgeous moment. I was listening to Roland Kirk's saxophone this morning in honor of the story. It's remarkable. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you know, we all want to, as writers, we want to put our kind of things we're into into stories, but that <laughs> can go wrong, you know, but, and, you know, I, I know that Andre loved jazz a great deal. And that these were the music got him through, you know, some of the tougher moments. I know that for sure, as it gets us all through a lot of tough moments. But he transfers that to this character and to Emily. And she ends up having had this experience with Roland Kirk, where he, as a blind um, musician, says something like, uh, I can't I can't find the page, but something like, it's nice to not know what you all look like, because then I won't know if you're fat or whatever, <laughs> ugly or whatever it is. Yeah. I just like, I just want to feel your presence. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's it's a it's a beautiful moment. And it comes back into the story when she actually tells she Emily kind of takes over and tells the story. Uh, and Drew is like, I like that. I like that. You know, it's not Emily's not She's definitely a bystander in this story for a lot of it. She's observing a great deal, but she actually at certain key points takes over. And I should say that the story, we can date the story. I roughly put it in what, 1989, maybe? Cassettes. When was the height of cassettes? Still in the 80s, yeah. Yeah, and it's important to know that, you know, this story is sort of set at a different time. Um, and, you know, again, some of the things that might seem uncomfortable me as a man reading it, you know, you say he gets it, but it's there's a fine line, right? <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's I could see, you know, maybe some of my students reading this and say, hey, wait a second. And actually, that's happened in teaching Debus's work. Sure. Where, where he gets um, he gets nailed for not misogyny necessarily, but a certain presumptive presumptiveness. But, yeah. you know, this whole theory as a fiction writer is, is I'm going to, into any head I need to go in. The thing about the scene with Kirk and her, her reverie from 20 years ago is it is another one of these communal things with strangers. Yeah. And she's with her girlfriends and, you know, Kirk's energy was incredible and people are pushing tables and chairs and making room for him and, he puts his his arms around her. He puts his arm around her waist and he has no idea. He can probably feel that it's a woman, of course, but he is not going to, as he says, he, he it's a good thing that he can't see everybody. He's not going to know who's who right. looks how. And that's such a that's a beautiful moment, I think, that sticks with her now that she's back. She's in the bar and and with all of these people. And after that scene with Kirk in italics, it says it would be something like that. She thought now, something ineffable that comes from outside and fills us, something that changes the way we see what we see, something that allows us to see what we don't. Then comes the scene where Jeff, you know, where she weeps in front of Jeff because he says, you know, how nice of her to be so thoughtful. 
And then he asks her, do you cry at what's beautiful? And she says, sometimes, how about you, et cetera. And they have this, this exchange that seems a little more personal than everything else that we, than all the interactions that we know about them. And it goes from there with the two of them. But again, again, what, sorry, I got derailed, but it, but it's, it's all about the time, the hours and hours and hours spent in there. The couple of hours would never work. And all of this transpires over these many, many hours as it must and to the point of exhaustion. And, And it allows for so many things to happen, so many connections to be made, even like these tactile things of touching Drew's hand and then hearing these even more personal things about him from Drew or from his caretaker. So it's it's like... We know all uh, uh, an awful lot about the two of them and their day to day, and it's not it's not easy to understand it if you've never experienced anything like that before. So I think for Emily, it's it's an it's a whole new thing, and I think it does open her up even more. And it sort of started twenty years ago with Kirk, but it opens her right. up even more at that. Right, point. and there's a real link between the experience with Kirk and the experience with Drew on this night. And, you know, I, I read the, towards the end of the story when Drew kind of pull, Drew and Alvin pull out their best, their, the best they got, which is the, the time that, that Drew jumped out of an airplane as a quadriplegic, right? That, that, that you know, it's, it's almost reads as like a set piece. You know, it's a story they're always going to tell. But on this night, it's going to be different. There's something, everything's different tonight in this story. And, and even, even the upshot of Drew's heroic thing to have done Whereas they told him, look, this is not going to work. You're, you know, the weather is not going to work for you today because you, you don't have functioning legs and, and there's only, there's a 90% chance you're going to get hurt. And he's like, I, you know, I've taken that kind of chance before. Let's do it. So he goes up in a plane and he has this ecstatic experience coming down. And then um, because of the, the, the way he lands, he breaks both legs, but he's a quadriplegic. He doesn't feel it. And so that's the story they end up telling, which is quite pretty dramatic. You know, and I hope we're not wrecking the story for anybody. I apologize. But then that's in the context of later as they start, everyone starts dancing. But of course, Drew's in a wheelchair, so he can't dance. But then Kay comes up to him and starts, uh, holds his hand and dances in front of him. And they're actually dancing. And then Jeff and Emily are dancing. And Emily says to him, I don't know if Kay should be doing that. And Jeff says, he jumped from an airplane but he could feel it, the thrill anyway, the air on his face. He can feel Kay too, she's there, she's dancing with him. He led Emily in graceful turns towards the front wall so she could see Drew's face. Look, he's happy. And then it goes into this whole discussion about how you determine if someone's actually happy, which, which is much more complicated and complicates the, this is a happy ending, right? But mm-hmm. what does a happy ending even mean? The abuse, I think, um, pushes that point, which is, you know, you think a happy ending is a happy ending. You're not, you don't quite understand how this works. It comes back to what you were saying about what Jeff was saying about the the, the quadriplegic that he yeah. knew. And this story is as much about, I mean, you know, Andre was somebody who lost both legs in an accident. He was in a wheelchair, but he was very, very interested in in, in not just his own life in that condition, but the people that he would meet. He would often talk about other people um, who were confined to wheelchairs. 
and and how just the vast range of differences, you know, and that we just, you know, those of us, you know, and he would actually use the words in in the uh, in this story, he'd call people normals, you know, and he actually mm-hmm. he used the word um, uh, disabled. He called himself proudly a cripple, which you know may bother people, and and I, and bothered people then too, but you know because he was sitting in the chair, I think he could say whatever he wanted, but. But Jeff knows this other person who's had this experience and he says that he wasn't happy, but then he, he says he wasn't happy. And, and Emily sort of pushes on that. And he said, and he says, well, you know, he could have fun. He could be with people. It wasn't that he wasn't happy. It wasn't that he was sad all the time. It, it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something about that, that, that resonates with my own friendship with Andre is that that I think that it, so much was a struggle and Jeff says that his friend had to work to have fun and I feel like that really resonates here I think what's I think Drew is working in this story to have fun he, he's opening all this stuff up for other people but what's he going through he's actually almost the most hidden character here you know which is what happens right I mean everyone everyone's paying attention to him but are they you know, are they able to sort of get in there? Probably not entirely, you know? And I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know what I'm saying, but that that I think by opening up everybody else, it doesn't necessarily answer what, what Drew's going through. I leave this night and I wonder about Drew, as I, as I used to wonder when I went home on Thursday nights. Hmm. Yeah, he is the single most still mysterious, unknown sort of question mark character. Even... Alvin is coming through, is coming through, and we know a little bit more about him. And he he, he even says it, I'm tired. He, he says what we are thinking as readers, we're tired. <laughs> Everyone else is drunk and ready to go. And you know, maybe maybe Kay and, and Rita are going to hook up tonight, and, and Jeff and, uh, and, and Emily aren't going to hook up tonight, but they plan to hook up tomorrow, apparently. <laughs> so, you know, things are, things are rolling, you know, but... You know Except. what? Uh, Drew and Drew and, and and Alvin are going back to the motel and heading to Maine in the morning. So there's an essay that um, of Andres from his very last book. This is his last book of fiction, um, and Dancing After Hours. You know, is the capstone of this last book and the title story. Um, but his final book was called Meditations from a Movable Chair, and one of my um, favorite essays from this is called It's called Song of Pity, and in that essay it's it's almost like it's almost like the, the the non-fictional version of this story in a way it's not as soaring and beautiful but it sort of establishes i think what andre was after sometimes in the sense of like he knew that his injury and his um you know he was run over by a car on, on 93 north outside outside of boston while he was helping um a, a couple change a tire brother and sister they were not hit allegedly he pushed them out of the way he was hit. But the point ultimately with, I think in terms of his vision of, of this kind of, from being disabled, his view is that he, he knew that everyone could see his sort of disability, but he also knew that everyone else is walking around with it and we, we may not be able to see it. And that's what this essay is about. And at one point he says this, he says, and this relates to his own life in the chair and he was not quadriplegic, but he's now talking about quadriplegics. A few years ago, after my crippling, I bought a video of the men and watched Marlon Brando playing a paraplegic. 
At his wedding, he stood from his chair, holding onto the pew beside him. Alone on my couch, watching him stand, sweating on paralyzed legs, I laughed out loud at this dangerous mockery of those who cannot, whose spirits are willing, whose flesh will not. And then this relates directly to this story. The quadriplegic will be forever dependent on someone. He cannot sit on a toilet. He cannot wipe himself or shave, shower, make his bed dress. He will use a catheter. He cannot cook. He will not feel the heat of a woman except with his face. Now, again, Andres, you know, yeah, you know where he's coming from. The, the Song of Pity, it's a kind of a manifesto of what this story ultimately is, which is that someone who has this disability has this ability to, to, to sort of uh, to sort of uncover other people's. And, and I, I, I saw this in action so, so many times. He, he had this way of looking at you where he could see what was wrong with you. And he, it wasn't like empathy, like in the way that we toss that word around today. It was like this piercing sort of like, I got you. I, I get you. Not that I got you. It wasn't going to rescue you, but he, he gets you. He gets you. And it was, uh, uh, I know, even if, even if people only met him for a couple of minutes, um, I know they probably, a lot of people probably felt that. Andre Debuse is the author of the short story, Dancing After Hours. Peter Orner is the author of the new essay collection titled, Still No Word From You, Notes in the Margin. His previous essay collection is, Am I Alone Here? Notes on Living to Read and Reading to Live. He's also the author of two novels and three story collections, including Maggie, Brown, and Others. Peter Orner is the director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides.